real professions and professional associations. The world is unstable. You need a ship that's going somewhere. Pick one. The point is, I don't have the answer to the future of the profession, but we are much stronger as a group. Experience so far has been that largely the nuttiest people in the room are usually the interpreters. I don't know why. In Colorado, we have a translators association and an interpreters association. And one year we decided to have a joint holiday party. And the party consisted of interpreters dancing to very loud Latin music while translators sat in the back of the room and drank wine and watched the interpreters dance. <laughs> no way, get out. You said that. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, just, um, you will edit out anything we say that is ridiculous, won't you? He's given up editing out everything that I say that's ridiculous because then we wouldn't have a show left. Hello and welcome to Troublesome Terps, the podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night, excluding coffee. Now, this is the first in our two-part series on professional associations, and we have not one, but two very special guests. But first, it's time to welcome the show connoisseur of the tablet beer, the muscles and freaks from Brussels, Alexander Drexel. Yes, hello and welcome to everyone. Uh, not sure what the, what the tablet beer thing is about, um, and I don't have any beer tonight, but I have a little bit of red wine. That's my confession right from the start. <laughs> I think that counts. <laughs> but of course, also with us on our virtual studio floor is the only conference interpreter to fall asleep twice during his own talk, the sardonic <laughs> Scotsman himself, Jonathan Downey. Jonathan, hey, how are you? I, I am very, very well. I must admit the tablet beer comment was from me, Mike. I'd really enjoyed watching Alex doing his um, future of tablet interpreting video and enjoying a drink out of the tablet at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I thought we'd just put that in. We need to drop that in the show notes. That is, he's an aspiring interpreting comedian. Can I just say, uh, uh, just ruin the outro completely and just say that this was a fun video to make, but the, the terrible thing was that um, initially the... Uh, sort of the screenshot that you see when you go to the YouTube page was me drinking the beer. And I, I thought, no, this is probably not the best first impression that we have to change that. And we did. Fair enough. I'm saying, that, saying nothing about German stadium. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And of course, I am Alexander Gansmeyer, coming to you from the magnificently mountainous Munich for this marvelously mind-boggling mission of talking about professional associations. <sighs> and as we said earlier, once again, we have two, not one, but two very special guests on the show today. First off is the chair of the Institute of Translation and Interpreting, senior lecturer in translation studies at the University of Portsmouth, and a Spanish to English translator. Please give a warm round of applause to Sarah Griffin Mason. Applause. Hey, Sarah. Hi there. <laughs> hey, Sarah. <laughs> And also with us, we have the president of the American Translators Association, French to English translator, blogger, and fellow podcaster extraordinaire, Corinne McKay. Hey, Corinne. Thank you. Thanks Woo. for having me. Applause for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you straight away, Corinne, uh, because I know that, that you have your own podcast together mm -hmm. with, with you. Have you ever guested on another podcast before, or is this a first? Um, I've been a guest on Tess Witte's Marketing Tips for Translators podcast, but not okay. in quite a while. And then, of course, I speak a lot on the ATA podcast, but that's, um, you know, sort of a different uh, 
category. For you guys, I, I guess I could have declined the invitation. <laughs> I, I never I never would have, but I guess it would have been an option. But for the ATA podcast, it's not really an option to decline. So, yeah. Fair enough. I didn't really count the ATA podcast, which which is great because it's the ATA podcast. But yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Of course that does count. Yeah. And um, what about you, Sarah? Have you ever been on a podcast before? I don't think I have actually. I've done some radio interviews which have gone in, <laughs> in varying um, sort of degrees of awfulness, frankly, but um, never on a podcast, no. You're doing great so far. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are naturals. Yes. <laughs> uh, not, not long after we finish recording this, I'm going to find out to which degree of awfulness it went at the next ITI board meeting. Well, I, I think you guys seem to be a bit more organised than the experiences I've had before. You know, it's been a case of like the producers or whoever ringing up and, and giving you a list of questions that you prepare, and then you go oh, live on air and they ask you something completely different, which is <laughs> yes, you know, kind of scary. Yeah. We only do that at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Once that must be such a relief, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm actually really worried that we're discovering people who are less organized than us. <laughs> Come on. Be, be, because, you know, everyone, everyone who comes on the show, we make them sign, the blood, sign a blood agreement that they will not tell anyone what the background to the show is actually like. It's worked out so far, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. Yeah, but before we jump into the topic, um, maybe we should discuss a little bit why we are... Uh, interested in this topic because I think we have touched on associations before in early episodes, but for some yes. reason we figured, well, this this should be a topic um, on its own. And I think I, I, I'm not telling too much when I say that we probably will have two episodes on the topic of associations. So stay tuned for that. But um, Jonathan, Alex, what was the what was the motivation behind uh, doing this? Part of my motivation for wanting to do this was that I'm noticing a shift in the association's landscape. Um, I think I wrote in my first book that traditional associations have been very top-down, they've been very guarded, they've been very kind of guild model of we set the standard of how you come into this profession and if you don't do it our way, we don't accept you. And now I'm more and more seeing associations still have high standards but do a lot more about outreach, about PR, about increasing the standards in the profession rather than saying these are the standards and we're not going to move them. And so I thought especially Corinne and Sarah were people who in my eyes are leading the leading the lights and changing the way that we see associations, changing the way associations see ourselves. And so I thought it was a great opportunity to have them together on the podcast to give their own view of how the landscape is changing and what an association means now. How about we pass that question on to... Corinne and Sarah, straight away, what, um, what, what, what do you think is maybe the, the most important thing for you? Maybe what, what was something that you wanted to, to do when you started out um, in your respective associations? Do we have an order to speak in or shall I just dive in? <laughs> <laughs> just dive in. Whoever jumps in first gets to speak okay. first. Go for it. I, I first, the first, my first involvement with ITI was basically I was a freelance translator. I needed more training. I thought the ITI should give, be giving it to me and it wasn't coming. So I basically, mm. I'm a busybody by nature. And so I, I got myself onto the education and training um, committee. And then sort of from there, things developed. We you know, ended up getting ourselves a, a person to actually work on professional development and we, we started doing a lot more planning of, of suitable content for our people and also spotting where 
the association itself could not provide the content, giving advice to people on where to find the content they needed, because basically the association can only do so much because everything has to break even. You can't be making a loss repeatedly. So we can only run training that will cover its own cost, really. And so for some people who want to learn, I don't know, specialist language about nuclear physics, we can't run a course on that. But what we can do is advise them on where to look for suitable um, content. Mm. So we spent a lot of time building up our understanding of, of, of the area of CPD and, and what it could offer. And really, that's, that's what got me sucked into ITI. And uh, mm-hmm. here I am, sort of 12 years later, <laughs> sitting in the seat <laughs> of the chair. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, been quite a, quite a ride. <laughs> and um, I, I haven't checked the exact dates, but you, you seem to have been in your current function for not too long. Um, what, what, what was your main motivation, Corinne, or your main... Was it was there something you were really desperate to do when you you know were chairing the association? Um, when well, I guess probably a better way to come at it, and I think when I was making some notes on your guys' questions, what I think is maybe more relevant for interpreters was when I started freelancing, which is now like sixteen years ago. Um, I had a baby and a master's degree in French (laughs) and an idea that I wanted to do a job where I could work from home when my daughter was little, at least. Um, And so one of the first things I did, so ATA, you know, one of the things you always have to talk about when you talk about things American is how huge they are. (laughs) So ATA is so large that we have that we have chapter state chapters. Um, so one of the first things I did as a freelancer was join my state association, the Colorado Translators Association. So I live in Colorado, which is in the Rocky Mountains of the U.S. And at long story short, at the end of my first year of freelancing, which I started from absolute zero, about 50% of my work had come from referrals through people I met through the Colorado Translators Association. So I think for me, yeah, the first, the, you know, the first sort of, you know, proof of concept that I saw for associations, and I had never really belonged to a professional association before, was you know, this is how you get to know people who start to form a really valuable and important uh, network for you. So that was, you know, that's probably a more illustrative example, because I think as well, um, you know, in an association the size of ATA, we have about 10,500 members. The What I wanted to do as president is probably a lot less relevant than what Sarah wanted to do as chair. <laughs> of the ITI because the whole association is a much bigger ship. But I think my, you know, first impression that in my first year of freelancing, it was literally like half my work came from um, networking in the Colorado Translators Association. That's kind of where I started with it. I think that's a good point to, to to mention as well, because that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the associations again from the perspective of the associations. Because when we did the other episode about professional associations, it was very much kind of, kind of coming from the interpreter's point of view. And I can see more and more now that... Um, not only interpreters, but also translators, in, for example, in the BDU in Germany, um, there's a discussion going on as to what associations actually do. Like, what role do they play? Should they be a job mm-hmm. platform for their members? Like, is that their main kind of mission? Are they supposed to 
get them jobs. Like Corinne, you were just saying you were getting 50% of your job of your jobs in the first year from the ATA, which is great, but that's kind of a, a discussion that we're currently having in Germany. Is that the main kind of driving force behind the associations or should it be what Jonathan was mentioning earlier as well and, and Sarah as well, the, the, the training aspects, the kind of special, specialist um, workshops on a particular field or maybe improving your language skills and just making sure that those right. uh, qualifications and, and, and levels are high in whatever you do. Well, and in the, in the U.S. too, I feel like um, we, something that is a larger and larger component of ATA is we get more and more requests from our members for advocacy and lobbying efforts um, at the state and even national levels. So, for example, to lobby the U.S. government to buy language services based on the best value rather than the lowest price. So, that's an, I mean, I feel like Associations, you know, fill all roles from the micro, like helping me meet people who will refer work to me, to the macro, which is like helping the U.S. government understand the importance of the work that I do. Well, I was just going to say that I think I think you know you can tell from both Corinne's story and mine that we joined basically out of self-interest to some extent and that that is true that is yeah. often <laughs> the case most people who join a professional association they do it because they think it's going to do them good and their business good and that may be through the networking it may be because you're publicly listed once you've got a qualification or you've passed an entry assessment or something and to be quite honest I think that's a fair thing to do it's only once you are in an association normally that you get the bigger view of it's not just about the individual you know when you look at proper professional associations across the board you know real professions have professional associations and those professional associations are there to represent and to sort of stake out an area and say we are professionals we do it like this these are our standards you know if you want to work properly with us, this is how you do it. And you're there to give knowledge and to inform about the profession as well as to benefit the, the members. I mean, you know, if you look at law, accountancy, medicine, architecture, they all have professional associations who are you know, quite strong. You know, even, even ATA, the size it is, is quite small by comparison to other professional associations in the US. We are small. By oh, yeah. Medical, exactly. legal. Yeah, the exactly. Bar Association, the American Medical Association. Yes. We're tiny. So we're we are limited in what we, we can do and what we can aim to do, but we can still have a very strong voice. And the more people who work together with their association, the better you're sort of lobbying your, your um, you, you can increase the visibility of your members. You can get professional recognition for them. And that's really at the higher level what professional associations should be about. I think that comes back to a question that I heard certainly when I was first joining the profession was this idea that somehow professional associations should be setting rates of pay or, you know, minimum fees or whatever. And I know certainly ITI has worked quite hard with its members to say we are not a union, we do other things, but, you know, we're not a union. Do you, do you think when people join professional associations, they almost treat it like they've become an employee rather than you know, these are lots of professionals getting together to work together for something. I think it's hard to understand exactly what professional association is. And to, I must have to admit, I didn't really have a full picture until I was on the board, because it's only when you're on the board 
that the sort of or the council I don't, I don't know what you call it in the ATI that's the only time that you actually see the full picture of everything the association is doing and it's your expectations of what you as an individual will get from that association they change in proportion I think and you know you become aware of the vast amount of work there still is to do in so many directions once once you're sort of involved in the sort of running of the organization. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Even at the even in Germany, where I'm currently on the board of the VKD, the German Association of Conference Interpreters, it's very difficult to communicate to them to all members equally what the association is doing at any given time. And sometimes members will complain that we're not doing this or that this isn't being done. And then you kind of have to go like, well, we're doing it, but it's not at a point where you might want it to see or where we can communicate it efficiently to the public. So it's it's kind of difficult to the 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 i don't know i don't i don't mean this in any particular way but to like the regular member to get a real picture of what the association is doing mm-hmm. i couldn't <laughs> agree more well we've we've yeah, actually provided them literally with a picture of what we're doing we <laughs> we have a, a our strategic <laughs> plan is drawn when we first drew up our strategic plan we drew a tree with branches and each branch was something we were doing and as they were done they were ticked off and so the next issue of the tree showed what had been done and the tr- the one tree has now grown to three trees and on our one day in event on <laughs> on june the 6th we'll pre- be presenting a little wood of all the things that we're doing and so yeah. it, it does aid understanding if you can do it in a sort of graphic form like, like that yeah. i mean one of the things that i face when i'm on the board is people ask you a question and i sometimes have to say to people would you like me to answer as an individual interpreter or as an mm. ITI board member? Mm. Because the answer that I will give at those two levels are entirely different. Yeah, and, and it has right. to be like that. And, the, there, to- and there are some things that you do in an association that people ask you about and you say, well, can I just say that leave it with us at the moment? And leave it with us usually means we're doing something which we're not allowed to tell you about right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, yeah. And it, it's yeah. this understanding of what you, it's like the, the, the iceberg, you know, the bit you see above the water right is a tiny percentage of everything that's going on. I mean, this is one of the the other questions I was thinking that we should move to now is, what would you say are the challenges that are facing you as an association now that you're trying to to deal with? The the challenges as an association, the main one for ITI is um, really member involvement because we we have a a small office staff who run the office and who sort of keep data where it should be, that sort of thing. But all of the actual strategic goals, strategic aims, strategic developments are done by volunteer members. And the more volunteer members we have committing even a small amount of time, the, the more we can move things mm-hmm. forward. So that that is a massive challenge because, of course, the people you want to be there helping you, representing you, etc., are the people who are successful and busy professionals who, you know, it's hard to get them to commit time. Um, so you know, we're, we're trying to look at ways of, of having small commitments people can do of, say, six hours a year, which they can then register as their CPD contribution to the profession in the year. They win. We win. Everybody wins. So it's, you know, trying to do that is, is our big challenge at the moment, I think. Yep. And what would you say is your biggest mm-hmm. challenge in, in ATA, Karen? Well, I'd say... Um, I mean, when I thought about this, I think, again, in the sort of macro and micro levels, I would say for us, 
um, on the big picture level, it's staying relevant in the social media age. So if you think about like from the middle ages until 1995, (laughs) about the only way to connect with other people who did the same job you did was through some sort of guild or professional association. And now I think part of what we look at is, you know, what do we offer that a free Facebook group doesn't offer that we deserve your 190 US dollars a year? And I think the answer would be, you know, we are a larger and more credible voice that when you go talk to your congressperson and say, you know, I'm a member of the American Translators Association, and I'd like to encourage you to, you know, maintain the US executive order that requires, uh, you know, language access in the courts for people who don't speak English that that's a lot different from saying, you know, I'm with a translator (laughs) Facebook group (laughs) and I'd like to encourage that, you know. So I think there's, there's that element, the whole, you know, relevancy issue. And then, you know, how do we help our members prepare for the future of our professions in a way that is both realistic and not paranoid? I mean, that's a, that's a whole other topic that I think, you know, for those of us, like I'm 46, so I'd say I'll probably work in this profession another 25 years, perhaps longer. And, you know, what will our jobs look like in 25 years? I certainly don't have the answer to that. Um, But, you know, and I think that techniques like, you know, technologies like video remote interpreting are placing some of the same pressures on interpreters that translators have felt from translation memory and machine translation. But I think, you know, what we, what we believe is we are certainly stronger facing those challenges together than being picked off one by one, you know, <laughs> as, um, as, you know, as whatever the future, and, and I think the point is, I don't have the answer to the future of the profession, but we are much stronger mm. as a group. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's something that, um, I mean, I know, I know the International Federation of Translation is, is looking into um, sort of the future at the um, conference in Brisbane last summer, that the whole idea of disruption and diversification was kind of at the fore and um, you know, as a result really we've within ITI we've founded our research network where we're we're launching that on the 16th of June as well where we're trying to pull together people who actually know about how these tools are developing and and basically what we want to do at ITI is to draw together arguments in favor of the human translator and in favor mm-hmm. of sort of human augmented translation rather than machine translation and um, the idea is to work out exactly what it is the humans can do that the machines just cannot do and then that is where our future lies basically so it's it's going to be quite a big job to identify that because we're going to go through a period of massively rapid change over the next sort of 20 years or so but um, I think if we arm ourselves with the correct arguments then we can you know, we can gird our loins for battle and we, we can go in there and you know, fight for our corner and say, hang on a minute, you know, we understand context, we understand culture, we understand all the things that machines just, nope, they do words. At most, they do sentences or, you know, segments of sentences. So, you know, there's a lot we do that they don't do, but we've got to pin it down and get the arguments right to fight back against the, the hype that has been, you know, it's very easy to sell people yes. an idea that they want to hear. So when you're hyping machine translation, you get free, instant, perfect translation, just like this, bazimba, there it is. 
who's not going to want that argument? When we come up and we say, well, actually, in translator talk, because we're really good at this, we've got loads of meta language to talk about what we do. And we can come up and we can explain to you in fine detail all the mechanics of the language that the machines can't do. But you can't understand that because you think mm. you know, you, it's too complex. So for a, a, a whole sector of professional <laughs> communicators, we are appallingly bad at telling people what we actually do. And we need to work out those messages <laughs> and get out there and say in simple terms that the client can understand now, with machine translation, you get this. With us, you get that. And these are the differences. You know, and, and it has to be on a fair, a fair argument, not just yeah. saying you need a Rolls Royce every time because you don't. Sometimes you only need a Mini. You know, but, but you've got to be <laughs> fair in what you're presenting. I think this is one of the things that I've noticed about translation associations and interpreting associations over the past few years is that there's been a kind of gathering of the amoebas into some kind of bigger organism and um, when you get on facebook groups everyone's got their own little opinion and you don't need a common you know trans uh, things translators never say or marketing for translators and interpreting for translators and interpreters those groups don't need a common voice in fact they thrive on having a multitude of voices when you get to association level and you're lobbying congress or you're talking to the times or telling the daily express why they're talking nonsense again um, you need a voice that makes sense and you need a common voice. And I think seeing associations now as people coming together and speaking as one, I think actually makes a big difference and changes, again, the way that we see associations, that it's not the association telling the members, it's the members in the association working together and telling the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. And and that, that actually goes on to a question that we we're going to ask a minute ago, which is, Apart from technology, do you see any other market level difficulties and changes and what are your associations doing to try to meet them? I think GDPR is going to be quite an issue um, simply because of the, the crossing borders with information. You know, we, we, there is quite a lot of global movement a lot of um, translators love their freedom they like to move and that there are going to be implications of gdpr on whether or not you can do work from a beach in thailand you know there, there's going to be issues at the moment it's not at all clear and we're trying to get to grips with this in iti we're first of all we're trying to make sure that iti itself is gdpr compliant because quite frankly you are more likely as a bigger entity to be challenged than you are as a, an individual freelancer. Um, but trying to get to grips with, for the variety of our members, in the variety of their national and um, personal circumstances of how they work, where they work, and who they work with, it's really hard to give sound advice that is correct to all of them. So we're, we're working on that at the moment, but it's it's going to be a complicated one. And I would advise anybody who is working across borders to sort of make sure they find out from both their source um, client areas and their, wherever they are working from what the rules are and whether or not they're compatible and you know where there may be problems. You really need to take in all the sources you can to, to make sure that you're you know, on top of it really. Having said that, it's pretty unlikely that you are going to be pursued Know, for for you know, issues that relating to GDPR as a, as a sole operator, I, I think, quite frankly, from what I've been hearing. So. 
yeah, it's going to be a big one. Thank you for making me feel better. I can, <laughs> I, 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 I can go and leak all my clients' information to the world and no one cares. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's not get into GDPR <laughs> at this point because then it's going to be a very long yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would. I wanted to move on to uh, because we were speaking about challenges. I wanted to move on to another challenge um, or, or to a potential challenge because you are both in charge of an association that is a professional association for translators and interpreters, mm-hmm. and some would say that those two groups are are in fact quite different in many regards. So I'm wondering how you tackle that. How how that informs your work as well, I guess. And maybe we we start with Karim. Sure. So um, one story I always tell when people who don't know that much about the language professions ask, you know, what would be the difference between translators and interpreters <laughs> was one year in Colorado. So we have in Colorado, we have a translators association and an interpreters association. And one year we decided to have a joint holiday party and the party consisted of interpreters dancing to very loud Latin music while translators sat in the back of the room and drank wine and watched the interpreters (laughs) dance (laughs) to the loud Latin music. So, I mean, when people say like, we really are kind of separated by a common profession, I think there's some truth to that. But I will say in ATA, in the last maybe 10 years, there has been a huge sea change in how we see interpreters within the association, which has gone from basically like, if interpreters want to join us, great. And if not, that's okay too. Um, To interpreters are one of the fastest growing constituencies within ATA. So again, like, you know, it's, I apologize that it's impossible to talk about anything American without talking about its enormity. (laughs) And just as an example, um, ATA has 20 divisions right now. So those are for languages and specializations and things like that. And we have 4,000 members in our interpreters division. It's the second big division after Spanish in ATA. And to our knowledge, if it were its own association, it would be the largest association for interpreters in the world. So I think bigger than AIC, I think. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the past 10 years, we've gone from seeing, you know, from seeing interpreters as, you know, great, they're totally welcome to join us, um, to interpreters really being a, you know, very core constituency within ATA. And for example, now, if you have an interpreting credential, you can have that displayed in the ATA directory, just like my certified translator credential would be displayed and things like that. And I think, um, you know, and I know you guys wanted to talk a little about corporate members too. And I think it kind of goes to like, we see ourselves as an umbrella organization for everyone with a stake in the language professions. And certainly within ATA, our interpreter constituency is large and growing. And I think that's to the great benefit of ATA. And I'm not saying that only because I'm talking on an interpreter podcast. (laughs) 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 I mean, one thing I've really learned from interpreters is like, translators are not resistors. 
Um, you know, if a translator works for a bad client, they will um, most likely write them a negative review online and never work for them again and leave it at that. Whereas interpreters, <laughs> you know, interpreters form organizations and interpreters, you know, really pressure um, the clients and entities who employ them to, you know, abide by their um, ideal working conditions and treat them as professionals and things that I think actually we as translators have a lot to learn from interpreters about that side of the profession. So I think it's, you know, to ATA's great benefit that we um, have interpreters within the association. Yeah, I think it's there's something similar to, to, to that in ITI because ITI was founded as the Institute of Translation and Interpreting, not translators and interpreters. Mm. So it was deliberately... Mm -hmm. It, it was deliberately planned that it would be an entity for the sector. And again, we also have corporate members. We have corporate education members as well. And we have other forms of membership for sort of people who are somehow linked with the profession, but not a translator or an interpreter. And the whole idea was that you know, basically together we're stronger, that we can sort of, we can help defend, develop, protect, inform people about our sector better by working together. Um, we do get some friction between um, our individual members and some of our corporate members sometimes, um, but the view of ITI institutionally is that we are all language service providers and if we all you know, campaign to improve the, the perspectives of our of our sector, then it's better for everybody. You know, if you wanted to be in a union, you would join another entity. Um, for interpreters, at the moment in the UK in particular, the public service interpreters have had a very, very tough time. And I, quite frankly, I don't think we have a swelling membership of people in that category. Most of the people who work as interpreters tend to do business liaison or they'll do, they have a portfolio career with a variety of services they offer because times are extremely hard, extraordinarily hard in the UK at the moment. And with the, the wonderful Brexit approaching, um, it's a time of both threat and opportunity for interpreters because I, I really do believe that when this comes to fruition, should it be completed, there will be a, a surge in demand for the services of, of interpreters when we have to do a lot more to, to get our own business deals should we not be in, in, the, um, in the EU trade um, block. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a toughie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a good word for it. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up myself, but now... <laughs> You've mentioned it. Um, this, I mean, Brexit is something that you're working on as an as an association, I believe, and that you're making preparations for. Is that a, a yes? Fair? Well, because ITI is apolitical. We have members who are pro Brexit. We have members who are not pro Brexit, and um, we have no political statement on that. What we have to help our members do is deal with the fallout of whatever happens. And in order to do that, we've set up a working party on Brexit, which has members, international members and, and UK members who are monitoring developments, especially in terms of anything that could affect the way that our members work so that we can be as informed and ready to respond as possible should things change. I mean, there, there may well be tariffs imposed on 
on services across borders. Who knows? You know, it, it's all up in the air at the moment. So we're, we're trying to keep an eye on it, monitor it and um, be as aware as we can be so that we can help our members climb over the the wall once it's built, should it be yeah. built. <laughs> yeah. And deal with the toughie, as you called it. Yes. <laughs> I, I think this is one of the difficulties, though, and one of the reasons why I'm very glad that I'm in ITI is that the reality is that should Brexit happen, and now there are various reasons why there are doubts as to whether Brexit will happen or whether we'll end up in the European economic area or whether we'll do a Switzerland. Um, no one actually has a clue what's going on. Um, but should should Brexit happen the way that certain parts of UK society want it, that means that, that our current cohort of conference interpreters are going to be stuck with about two to three years of solid policy work. Um, just because there's going to be so many European working European Works Councils to try and sort out what happens in each company. You know, before we even do the trade, all the companies have to work out how we're going to treat our employees. Um, and so I think the, the, the interest, I, I agree with Sarah that it's an opportunity, but it's also a slight challenge because, you know, would you, being a, a national of another EU country, want to stay in the UK post-Brexit? Well, if you're an interpreter and you, and you can realistically take your career anywhere in the, in the EU there are big questions about whether you would even want to stay. Um, and it, it's a difficult one to deal with. And, and that's the kind of question I think that you, you leave for the associations to, well, you work with the associations to deal with because as an individual interpreter, it's far bigger than you could possibly deal with. But in the middle of all of these negotiations, you can have associations lobbying and writing letters or getting letter writing campaigns or collect, collating information on a scale that you just couldn't do as an individual. It's kind of like GDPR, you, you, you have economies of scale when you work together. Yeah, we provided guidance and a sort of um, framework letter to members so that they could lobby their MP, <laughs> you know, should they wish to. But obviously, because we don't have a political stance, you know, we, we would not make a political um, move one way or the other. What we mm. will do once we have any idea of what the implications may be for our sector, then yes, we will obviously defend our our sector. But mm. um, that has to be for the good of, of the sector as a whole. And um, we've had advice at the university about how to get government to listen to you. And at the moment, you can imagine in government, it's a maelstrom of there. You, you can just imagine. And the only way you get heard by government is by going in as a cross-party, sort of cross-sector group that comes in with a solution. So uh, we, we've been working at, in ITI at um, forming um, links with other entities, other linked areas of trade and industry, of um, the business associations, etc., so that we can go in with arguments which are agreed amongst the members saying, you know, for language services, for trade, for industry, for business, you need to do this, this is our recommendation. So it's having those messages ready. No one's listening at the moment. There's no point saying anything right now because there are bigger issues hmm. um, that I think probably for the next... 12 to 18 months, possibly longer, they'll, they'll be hogging all the space available to, you know, to the people in power. But once, once there is the new framework for trade has to be carried forward, we need to be there saying, you need this, these services. These are the sorts of services you need. These are the sort of providers you should be working with. So. 
Mm. Yes. So an opportunity, but a lot of work. <laughs> Whole yeah. lot of work. <laughs> Isn't that what we love? But um, Sarah, actually, let me just kind of latch on to, to something that you said, but kind of switch gears a little bit. You've mentioned that you're connecting with, um, that you're kind of linking up with different organizations or, or um, actors involved in the different uh, well, spheres mm. of trade, if you will. And I was just wondering, um, and this is also, of course, for you, Corinne, if you guys from the ICIM, from the ACA, if you're looking at kind of cooperating or collaborating in a way um, between different associations, mm. both nationally or internationally, and it doesn't only have to be interpreting mm. or translation associations, it could be I don't know, a medical association, Corinne, you you mentioned those earlier. So maybe, you know, do you guys do any cross trainings? Do you do any awareness trainings? Or is there any any sort of collaboration going on between those? We're all members of, well, I know ATA and, and ITI are all members of you know, FIT, the International Federation of, of Translation um, yes. Associations. And that's a worldwide entity that campaigns on things that, are sort of very central, really, to translation and interpreting. I mean, they, they managed to get the UN recognition of International um, Translation Day on the 30th of September. It's now an official day. Um, things like that. They work on those sorts of things. But when you're talking about the more practical sort of, what would you call it, sort of ground level working with your, the people who are likely to employ your members, you can't really do that as a world approach because markets are so different. You know, you, you have to be a bit more local about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we do in ATA, I guess we do quite a bit of that type of thing in the sense that We send people, normally ATA board members, but sometimes other people as well, to other associations' conferences. So, for example, this past week was the annual convention of the American Copy Editors Society, and we sent uh, Madalena Sanchez-Zampaolo, who's our PR chair, who went to that conference and did a presentation on preparing your copy for translation. So I think that's one thing that we found to be really effective is to just go there. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I actually do the least of it. But that's one thing that we found really effective is that when at least, I mean, this is something that you guys probably have less of a need to do in Europe But in the U.S., there are, you know, there's a large um, contingent of the U.S. population that knows little to nothing about languages other than English and how they fit into the business world. And so we found it really effective to just go to those other associations conferences, um, you know, go, to go. We send somebody to the Association of Business Communicators conference every year and things like that and have try to have them do a presentation mm -hmm. about translation or a colleague and I went to the um Rocky Mountain Paralegals Association. They're like legal assistants. So people who, ass it's, who assist lawyers. Um, and we went and did a presentation about how to work successfully with translators and interpreters. So, yeah, I mean, we do, we do that largely by going in person to those associations. Yeah, I think if you look at the the way people move, the sort of speak, conference speakers move, you'll find a lot of them are members of two or three associations, and that they will contribute content to to many. 
I mean, we, we have an agreement with the Mediterranean editors and translators to, to share sort of speakers and reviews of, of content with them and also with um, the sense, the, um, what are they called? The editors in the Netherlands. Yeah. And, and we sort of share, we share speakers, we share content, we share ideas deliberately, but that's to benefit our members. Um, when you're talking about um, influencing other groups, we're perhaps not as well advanced in that as it sounds like you are at the ATA, but we are developing materials to go to business events to talk about how to work with a translator, how to work with an interpreter, what it is that languages can offer your business. And we're working with, um, uh, what is it, the Department of Trade and Industry, we've just formed a contact there, and um, he's given feedback on our sort of draft presentation on on you know, what what languages can do for you, and we're going to you know work on that, and then hopefully deliver it at a few events. So we're we're getting there, but we're definitely not as firmly on that path as the ATA sounds to be. I, I think this comes back to the issue of volunteers, though. Um, I now go to business events that aren't for interpreters because I want to get clients at them. And personally, I find them very useful in that um, there's always a scream at professional associations for more in depth you know, translator-specific training. You know, people don't want training on how to be a translator anymore. They want, they don't even want medical translation training anymore. They want in-depth training on, I don't know, translation and gynecology or something. Um, and, and I find out very quickly that the best training on my target market is being given to the people in my target market. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. right. And so rather than shouting at ITI saying, you know, why is there not more yeah. training on this? Why is there not more training on that? I thought, well, I know where that training is taking place. That's taking place at trade shows. That's taking place at business shows. I'm going to go there. Mm -hmm. And while I'm doing the training with those people, I'm going to meet them and you never know one yeah. or two might become clients. Yep. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and uh, should you wish to have, um, you know, professional information from other professions, then the best thing to do is to go to events for the other professions. Now, I know a lot of medical translators who go to the European Medical Writers Association um, meetings, and they are now trained as medical writers as well as translators. Because, wow. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the way to do it. They are super professional. Yeah. It, it's, um, hmm. yeah. There's an expectation almost that um, – a professional association would be like an all-you-can-eat restaurant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can show up with your plate and, and fill mm -hmm. it up. Um, and I think it's wonderful for associations to work together, especially outside of the normal specializations. But by the same token, you know, if someone's an engineering translator, the only person in the entire association who's going to form a bond with your local institute of engineers is going to be an, an engineering translator mm -hmm. who, you know, maybe used to be an engineer and still kept his membership, his or her membership. We have some of those, um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we have some of those. And I, I would like to kind of form a call. It's more translators tend to be better at doing that than interpreters, but certainly interpreters, you know, I know one interpreter who specializes in neurology interpreting. Mm -hmm. And he interprets as much as he wow. can at neurology conferences. Well, he should be a member then of whatever neurology association mm -hmm. is relevant and mm -hmm. should be the link between his interpreting mm -hmm. association and the association of neurology. 
Um, the issue, everyone waits yeah. for an MOU when actually they're just waiting for yeah. you. <laughs> but there is also an issue that mm-hmm. you know, people in the professions that are, what would you say, better funded, you know, a lot of people who are medics will go to medical conferences that are funded by drug companies, pharma companies. And so the entrance fee will be so exorbitant that a freelancer of any nature would not be able to afford it. So, you know, we have to also be mm. quite intelligent about how we get around that one and I mean I've suggested to my students in the past why not write directly to the organizers and say I am a student of translation I am hoping to you know to enter into the area of medical translation I would really love to attend your event but it's beyond my price bracket blah 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 and quite often you'll find that they are quite generous in, in offering spaces and there's nothing wrong with saying you know I am a freelance translator working in this area you know I would really appreciate blah 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 you know it, it can be done but you've got to have a lot of front <laughs> so, yeah. yeah interpreters don't usually lack front <laughs> um, but it, it's I, I, I joke with people that if you want to know what interpreters are going to be talking about in 10 years time you look at what translators are talking about now um, and it's a kind of this episode for me as much as anything else is appealing to interpreters to listen to what the tran- the translators side of the translation of associations have done and go well, you know we might not be able to be as specialised. I came across a translator recently who only translated texts on concrete. Um, must have been a very hard specialism to get into. There's my fun <laughs> of the day. Code. I know someone who does only coatings. Yeah. <laughs> Chemical coatings. Yeah. No interpreter could ever do that. But on the other hand, you could be a conference interpreter who specializes in uh, European Works Councils. You would be insane if you were an interpreter who only did European Works Councils and you would need to go and see a doctor very quickly. But you could do that. And you and you could be the world's expert on European Works Councils and you would have my pity and my honor. Um, but, you know, we, we, we can do these things and perhaps that's a route to be, uh, the profession being seen better. Um, we, we were talking about earlier about, and I think we've, we've just picked up on that later, about the need for individuals to do work themselves. Um, could you two kind of tell us a little bit about um, how you encourage people to volunteer and the power of volunteering within your organisations? Well, maybe before you two answer that question, maybe we can um, just switch it here. And I could ask the other Alex, for example, why he decided to become a volunteer, because I, I think he's been one. Um, I think it was Sarah who was saying that, or was it you, Corinne, who said you're a busybody? That's that's me. That's me, definitely. (laughs) I'm kind of the same way, you know, especially in the beginning of my career as a freelancer starting out. It's not like you're drowning in work. So, you know, I figured in the beginning, particularly, why not kind of get involved in the associations now that I still have the time. And then I just kind of tasted blood and I stuck with it. <laughs> and yeah, and it's, and it's just kind of nice. And I can only recommend, I do recommend it to young up and coming interpreters and translators to, to get involved, not necessarily immediately go into the various boards of this world, but, mm-hmm. you know, get involved to help, I don't know, organize a regional meeting or something along those lines. And then kind of through that step-by-step, kind of get a foothold in the association, kind of make your mark, get to know the people, and then you can see if it's for you, if it's not for you, and then maybe you'll end up on the board. Not saying that that needs to be the end goal, but, you know. I, I am... Steps. I, I'm going to quickly tell my story. To, now, I am... Um, 
I'm not so much a busybody as an opinionated piece of work. And um, years <laughs> but a charming, a charming you, you, one, a charming one. You, you would never know I was an opinionated <laughs> piece of work, would you? Um, and about eight, nine years ago now, there was there there was an ITI forum on LinkedIn, and the then I believe he was vice chair or board member, uh, Nick Rosenthal threw out a question saying, "If ITI could do anything for you, what should what what should it do?" And me being opinionated and a fairly new interpreter who thought he knew everything, um, just came up with some stuff. Um, and especially as a new interpreter, you think you know everything that needs fixed. Um, and then, you know, after a little bit longer in that discussion, Nick sent me, I think it was a DM on Twitter saying, uh, with you know, something like, with, with uh, boldness like yours, have you ever considered joining the board? <laughs> Good question. And I went, um, no. He said, you really should. So uh, I joined the board. I, I left about a year and a half later because we had a baby and I had a PhD. And then I came back because actually, even when I was first on the board, it was a very difficult time. Even then, I could see that when you have a chair like Nick, when you have a chair like Ewan, when you have a chair like Sarah, chairs who can drive things and bring people with them and create and change things, then actually being a board member because it becomes a lot of fun and you learn so much about the macro level of your profession that you would have never seen anywhere else. Yeah, that's very true. I think my story is quite yeah. similar to yours, Alex. <laughs> it's kind of being a busy buddy and having too much time on their hands, especially early in the career. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what got me into it as well. But it's, it's just such a wonderful way to build your own little community of practice as well. I mean, I met you know, some of my best colleagues and my best jobs have come through things that have just by chance happened to be ben mentioned in meetings, in you know, organizing things, in all sorts of odd situations, but all to do with ITI. You know, my best clients have come through chance encounters at, at ITI meetings of various sorts. And it, it just grows your world, it grows your contacts, and it improves the quality of the people you meet because people who are interested in professional entities are the people who no, they tend to be the people who are more driven, who are seeking to improve themselves and their lot in life in some way. So it, it is a really good way to move forward rather than just the constant round and round rhetoric that you will find on you know, on various sort of free open um, uh, forums. You know, when, when people have committed to an association, they are determined to improve things. Very now, they're not just there to groan or grumble or even you know, be quite happy, but report you know, wonderful things. They're there to actually do something in a in a structured manner. So it's it's a good place to be if you want to you know, advance yourself and ad advance the sector. Yeah, that's very true. But I actually want to mention a challenge. And, and on that note, I would like to give you a, a second little glimpse of my story as to how I ended up in all these different associations. It's because I was always the only one at the right place at the right time, if you will, kind of saying, yeah, sure, I'm going to do it. Mm. And that's the way that I ended up at the NWTN. That's the way that I ended up at the ITI. I was always the only person kind of running for the position or job. I was the only person saying, yeah, sure, I can do the job. And then if you're the only person who says that you can do the job, you get the job. Yeah, you usually, you usually end up getting the job. And um, it's been that way in all of my associations. That's kind of how I ended up in in all these different positions. And I think that goes to a larger theme in associations that we see even in Germany over here is that we're, I wouldn't say we're struggling to find volunteers, but 
and this is kind of a question to the both of you, Sarah and Karen, how do you activate the membership to volunteer? Because I, I find it quite gratifying um, most of the times. And as you said, Sarah, it becomes quite fun and you get to learn a lot about not only your profession, but also your, your kind of fellow professionals and kind of like the, the, the industry at large. But um, it can be a lot of work. And sometimes I think that people kind of want to just lean back and 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 reap the fruits of of i don't know someone else's labors in the association so yeah exactly so how do you activate the membership to to become volunteers is kind of the question my approach is that if i see someone who shows a spark in any direction i ask them to do one small task and if they do the one small task and then ask them to do one a little bit bigger and um you know you you can you can tell if people are willing to become involved and you know, anyone who approaches me and says they're interested, I make sure I get back to them and find something that they can do. And, you know, we, we for instance, um, let me think, in the Spanish network, when I was sort of recently joined, um, a lot of people were wanting mentoring. And so, you know, I've been a teacher. I know how to draw a list and a group and this sort of thing. So I said, okay, <laughs> who, who would offer mentoring? And a few people in the group said, I would. And so we just put that out and said, these people are offering mentoring. These are the sort of subjects. If you'd like to be mentored, get back to us. And because we designed it specifically to be this six hours over a year, nobody was scared off by it. And so if you can get people to commit a small but regular amount of time, you're on to a winner because mm -hmm. very few people will object if you ask them to do something small. The trouble is, is that a lot of associations will ask you to do something small and then suddenly, like Alex was saying, you are responsible for a massive amount of, of, of content. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. to guard against that. And what, what we're doing at ITI is we're developing um, various sort of labels that people can have. So you can be an ambassador on one topic uh, this is this is all in the, the sort of pre-publication stages. But the idea is to have ambassadors who have a topic that we want them to go out there and you know speak about publicly. We can have people who do outreach, which can be simply going into you know a local school regularly or several local schools once in a year at sort of key points in the in the, the school cycle. For instance, you know, every school in, in the UK has a book week. You can go in and read a book in another language. Every school in in in, in the country has a secondary school will have a careers time when you know, children are choosing the options that they're going to study for their for their secondary school exams. And so it's identifying those key points and getting our members to go and do one. We've got 3,000 members. If each one does one of those, how many people have you informed about our profession? Mm -hmm. And it, it's the drip, 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 drip. It's designing things that people can do. They can just take it off the shelf, go and deliver it. It takes them an hour or two at most, and they've done something wonderful. And it's making sure that we have plenty of those that people can use, you know, depending on their circumstances and their confidence. What's your take on this, uh, Corinne? What, what about trying to activate the membership, as Alex put it? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, one thing that we certainly, that has become apparent to me in ATA is a key characteristic in an association leader is a keen eye for a young, energetic volunteer. <laughs> and to make sure that you get your claws in them before someone else does. Um, I think that's a critical <laughs> skill for um, for being on the board of any association. But yeah, I think... Um, 
that all of us know you have to have a leadership pipeline because from day one, you need to be thinking about who comes after you. Um, because, you know, when I'm, your goal is to make yourself obsolete. Because when I'm going to the ATA conference in 25 years, I want to be attending a fabulous conference that someone else puts on. <laughs> I don't want that to be dependent on me for, for all eternity. Um, so the pipeline is hugely important. So I think, you know, we ourselves, everybody on the board and the ATA officers are always on the lookout for the Alexes out there, the young, energetic, smart people with good ideas um, who just need to be plugged into a role that needs to be filled. Um, and then, for example, on all of our committees, we encourage our committee chairs to have a deputy chair so that we know, you know, who is potentially coming after this uh, that person so we don't have a huge void. Because I think, you know, one thing we all experience in associations is that people who have big ideas and big personalities run really great programs, but they are also very hard to replace. And yeah. that you can't, we really, it doesn't serve anybody well if you have a single point of failure that you have this incredible program, but it's dependent on a big idea, big personality person who is essentially irreplaceable. So, um, so that's something that I think is really different in associations than in, say, the corporate world. And I think the two ways we think about it are the pipeline and then just approaching people individually. Because, you know, when I think of myself when I was in my 20s, um, it sounds like a nice idea to say, if you'd like to get involved more in ATA, give a board member a call. <laughs> <laughs> When I was when I was in my twenties, I would have been like, "Can the earth please swallow me up?" Before I have to call <laughs> a board member and say, "You don't know me, but I have what might be a ridiculous idea that I think ATA should implement." But the thing is that I think to your story, Alex, that a lot of times we see in the perspectives of our newer, younger members things we should be doing that those of us who have been in the association or the profession for a long time don't realize, don't know about, don't think about. Um, so I think also approaching those people personally and saying, you would be really good at this. You know, you're smart, you have good ideas, you're good with people, you have a lot of energy. You know, what about filling this role within our association? And I think that that it's important to realize that you can't always rely on, well, we've sent out 73 emails and we still don't have anybody to organize this, that sometimes you have to go to the person who would be great at it and say, you would be right. great at this. Um, and then they'll step up, but you can't always rely on members to take the initiative because when you think of yourself as a first-year member, like it takes a lot of, con it takes a level of confidence I wouldn't have had in order to do that. That's a good point. I just wanted to say I really appreciate it that you mentioned this this difficult line, I think, um, between, you know, spotting those people and, and approaching them and then also making sure, on the other hand, that these people do not really become irreplaceable. Because I've seen in more than one association where there were problems then with people that have become or even made themselves irreplaceable because that, that can really cause a big headache, especially in the long run when this goes on for a for a, a long time, but um, maybe that, that's just a, a segue. We don't need to get into this. Um, what, what, uh, actually, unless anybody wants yeah, to. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's a really interesting point because one of the things that's helpful about the ITI board is when you join, you know you're joining for a three-year term, which you can renew once maximum. 
you're not going to become the ruler of the free world. You're not going to be, you know, ITI is not going to be your baby. You have a term. Um, and while I think most associations have that at board level, I think there's always a little bit of squeamishness about introducing that further down because, you know, we think, well, they're doing such a good job with uh, our Committee for Esoteric Regulations and no one else really wants that, so we'll just let them stay there. But the problem is, is that when you have, um, I know of cases where people have sat as the chair of a committee for so long that it became impossible at board level for anyone to think that anyone else could run that committee. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then you think, well, okay, well, well what do we do now? Um, on the one hand, you want to encourage inter young interpreters, you know, join in, volunteer, uh, grab a, an ITI badge and go to a trade show or, or whatever. On the other hand, it's it's quite strategically difficult for an association to start the conversation with a, you know, a leadership candidate in some role saying, we'd like you to do this, but by the way, there's a, an end point that by then you will no longer be doing this. For some people, that's helpful. For some people, it's like, well, why do you want me at all if you're limiting me to three years or six years or whatever? Um, and it, it's this line between you want the best people in the job, but you don't want people to have an empire. Um, and actually, I would, maybe it's because I like ridiculous ideas. I sometimes wonder whether the people with the most ridiculous ideas are actually the people that you want in the room. Because, <laughs> the, because you know, the, I, you, we've all met the person who's had one idea and that idea is 20 years old and it was out of date when they first had it. You maybe need some ridiculous people uh, hanging around. I mean, I, I remember the like our ITI board strategy away days. You have to be ready to throw some it, it, silly ideas, even if it's just in a small group of four or five members. Mm, yep. Because what, what sounds like a stupid idea to you, there's usually someone sensible at the table who goes, well, hold on, we might not be able to do, you know, go that far, but you've actually got me thinking about something. And my my experience so far has been that largely the nuttiest people in the room are usually the interpreters. I don't know why. <laughs> um, they, they usually open their mouth and just let stuff fall out. Um, and then you get a translator who's used to thinking in detail going, ah, that sounds crazy, but there's there's a kernel of something good in there. You know, they deal with half-expressed nonsense for a living. <laughs> they can deal with people come out, coming up with a crazy idea. Well, I mean, I think another key thing you learn as an association leader is there's a shred of truth in every unhinged rant. That's one. That's a, that's a that's a lesson. I mean, and and I mean that in a sort of joking but not joking way. That I think sometimes you know in those fringe arguments there is something that you go, why don't we do that, or why do we do that? You know, um, and yeah, and I think that having that diversity of viewpoints is really really valuable. Exactly. I mean, our board strategy meetings that you know, we we had deliberately because there hadn't been a long-term strategy previously and fr frankly I was incredulous because every entity I've ever worked with because I haven't always been a single freelancer they've always had a one-year two-year five-year plan and a wish list for 10 years time and if you don't have that you lose direction and you know when the next person takes over leading the entity they go off on their little you know navigation towards whatever it is that fascinates them and all of that all of that what would you call it collateral that has been built up gets lost so we've kind of quite deliberately drawn up a strategy that is you know broad and solid with I think we started off with 23 priorities that we then had to <laughs> put, it, put in order of 
you know, which were the ones that you could do easily and with very little money? Right, we'll do those. Mm-hmm. Which are the ones that will take a bit more work? Right, we'll start those. And which are the ones that are just you know, pie in the sky and they're not going to happen? Well, we'll keep them there and we'll aim for them when we can. And, and you, have to, you have to do that because you know, obviously I've got one more year as, as chair of the board and then I'll be out. That'll be it. I'll be out. And you know, the rest of the people on the board will have to get up, pick that up and run with it. But we, we're trying to design our turnover of posts to be a planned succession so that there is continuity. And that is hard to achieve. <laughs> but it, once you achieve a certain degree of stability, people are more happy to come on board when they don't think they're going to have something awful dropped in their lap. They're, they're, they're happier to you know, come along for the ride. So, yeah, it's, it's all about planning and and thinking ahead, really. I, I have a slightly related question to this, I hope, at least. Um, I, I think that kind of these big projects are also ways of keeping volunteers engaged, not only members engaged, but especially volunteers engaged. And I'm thinking specifically of the big lobbying day, Corinne, that you had with um, ATA mm-hmm. in... Uh, at, at the US yeah. Congress. So um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And I'm sure Sarah has sort of uh, similar ideas or sim- similar things that um, the ITI have been doing. Yeah, sure. So um, as I said uh, earlier in the conversation, one um, push that ATA has been getting from our members in the past few years is to do more sort of high level advocacy and lobbying for the language professions and, of course, by association for ATA, but really for the language professions as a whole to talk about why the work we do um, is important, why our work matters. So when we had our annual conference in Washington, D.C., which was this past October, so ATA belongs to a lobbying organization called JNCL, the Joint National Committee for Languages. And um, they have a lobbying day. JNCL has its own lobbying day every year, which is usually in February. So um, working with them, we have the idea, or maybe they had the idea. (laughs) An idea was generated to have an ATA, we called it Advocacy Day. So what this was, was um, JNCL made appointments with the uh, congressional delegation, senators and representatives of anyone who wanted to attend. And then they put together three briefing documents for us on um, sort of critical issues for the language professions and trained everyone on, you know, how do you meet with a congressional staffer? And in some cases, our people actually got to meet with the actual Congress people, which was really exciting. Um, So, but the expectation is that it would be a staffer and talk to them about about these issues that are important to the language professions, such as, you know, appropriate use of machine translation, how to select language services based on best value rather than lowest price, things like that. Um, so we had um, 50 people attend, and I can't remember how many different states were represented, but we had 50 attendees total. And even in the midst of, you know, everything else that is being thrown in front of the U.S. Congress, the reception to our message was extremely positive. I mean, perhaps it's that it's something more pleasant to talk about. (laughs) I don't know, maybe now would be a good time to approach the U.K. government (laughs) because it's something 
were pleasant to talk about, but um, but the people um, who attended felt that they were very well received and that the, the our message was very well received. So it's actually something that we are looking into doing again um, because I think it was a great experience for the 50 people who attended and the reception that we got from our members when we publicized it in the ATA magazine and things like that was extremely positive. So that is definitely a direction that we're going to continue um, going in, which is really a pretty new thing for ATA. And I will say as well, um, that is a, an impetus that came from our members, that that is something that I think has historically not been a huge part of what ATA did. And we saw from our members that there was a real need and a demand and an expectation that we do that because of the you know size and credibility of the message when we are all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a slightly different sort of environment at the moment in the UK, um, that partly because of the the uproar over public service interpreting um, as austerity and mm-hmm. um, the Ministry of, of Justice contracts basically almost decimated that area here and there is um it's very hard to be heard right now by government and in Um, just out of curiosity sarah in the uk are your um governmental representatives obligated to meet with you because in the us they are i should say that's something that in the us makes it a lot easier is that you know the halls of congress are public and if you make an appointment your representative staffers are actually obligated to meet with you Yes, I mean you you can get access to your your local MP, mm. and um, you know we have had people sort of write write to local MPs, but um, the the issue right now is that it's very hard to convince people of the relevance of translation and interpreting at the moment. Mm. Um, I've had several conversations where as soon as I say what I do. I get the glaze over because it's not a priority right now. And I, I think it's something, like I said earlier, that will be a pro- priority in a couple of years' time when people realize they actually need language services. At the moment, other concerns come first. Um, so so it, it's a hard message to, to get right at the moment. And we're working at, in ITI on getting the messaging, um, basically bypassing um, government at the moment and going direct to the people who are going to need the services Mm. and talking to them about how to work with with translators and interpreters Mm -hmm. because in in government you've got this rather strange situation where um the the minister of justice is one thing and that's police and court interpreters and then the foreign office and anything diplomatic well they do all their training in-house themselves the military all of their language services are done in a, a, a very closed way due to secrecy requirements, etc. So you don't have one approach. You don't. It, it's very a very sort of sectioned off sector. And um, while I mean we've, we've had discussions with military linguists who've expressed their reservations about the way the military does things, but that's the way they do it. <laughs> and that's kind of that's where the conversation has gone. Um, we've talked with um, you know the the um, the diplomacy services and they train their high level diplomats in languages in a certain way and that's the way they do it so you know, the, the, it's a difficult conversation to have but we need to keep keep plugging on with that one now, in the meantime we're going to go directly to the people who are going to buy services and talk to them 
I think it's almost time to wrap this up, even though it's been, of course, a lovely conversation with all of you. But before we kind of uh, get into the, the, the wrap up of this whole thing, I actually have a question for Alex Drexel. Um, because, of course, you are a staff interpreter, and I think we've heard a lot about um, associations and what they do for freelance interpreters and translators around the world. But why did you actually decide to join a professional association? And why do you think it's important for staffers um, or even employed translators somewhere to to join? Well, I'm glad you asked, Alex. <laughs> 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 no, I mean the truth. Is, I figured <laughs> the truth is I, um, I think I'm. I've always been a member of a professional association, even as a student, because I just figured it would be a good idea. It just made sense to me for many reasons that we've discussed. I mean, uh, because of the networking, you know, getting to know colleagues, and um, because of the training opportunities, and and all of that, and also because I I wanted to volunteer at some point. Um, so that, so there was that. And as a staff interpreter, I, many people say, yeah, I mean, it's not worth it or, or why do you even bother being being a member? But I don't think that's true. I mean, first of all, there's a, a slightly slightly specific situation because um, IEC, which is the International Association of Conference Interpreters, is very much involved in negotiating the working conditions that we have at the European institutions. Um, and those, of course, do not only apply to freelancers, but also to staff interpreters. So it makes complete sense from my point of view, at least to, to be a member of IEC and, and to support that because of course, working conditions are very important for us. Um, and, and also it's, um, I think that the fluffy feeling of solidarity, if you know what I mean, <laughs> <So> <laughs> just being part of, just being part of a community, I guess, you know, and, and supporting that community and, and also volunteering. So I do a little bit of uh, volunteering work uh, in, in AIC as well. And I, I used to do in, in the Faucade where I was a member before. So I, I think those would probably be the, the, the big reasons, really that, that sense of community and, and very practically also the, the whole point about negotiating um, our working conditions. And plus, of course, it's, it's lovely to meet, you know, other colleagues working in this field that I don't necessarily meet every day because they work in other institutions or they're on the private market or whatever. Um, it's a good opportunity also to network worldwide, you know, and um, meet interpreters from around the world that you wouldn't usually meet, but that you can meet during the um, sort of assemblies or where the whole association gets together every three years. Um, yeah, I think that that would be the, the main reasons for me. Good reasons, <laughs> I would say. So everybody who hasn't joined an association, listen up and go out and join. Right. So I think as a wrap up, what we can do if um, you're up for it, Corinne and Sarah, I think it would be nice for you guys to just sort of give an, sort of an elevator pitch, if you will. And it can either be about why an interpreter should care about joining either the ATA or the ITI, or if that's not your cup of tea, um, what would you kind of like to let your members or potential members know? So what, what would you kind of like to say to them now that you have this, this soapbox of a podcast? <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure who your audience are, but I, I would suggest to anybody that they join the associations that seem relevant to them right now. I wouldn't say to join any particular one because it will depend on your independent, you know, your, your, your own place, where you are in your profession, where you are in your career. And you may well find that your associations 
know, may not be the ITI or the ATA. It may well be that it's AIC or it may well be that it's some other association. It really does depend on your individual um, position. However, I would suggest that you join one in your source language country, etc., and one in your target language country if you can, because that way you can be aware of both sides of the argument, both sides of development. So, a rather broad answer, I'm afraid, not particularly ITI oriented. <laughs> That's fine. We'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Corinne, what do you, what are your, what is your take? Yeah, so I guess I would say, um, you know, if if I were going to give a, mem a message to ATA's current membership, um, or even current and prospective membership, it would be, um, we are stronger together. Um, there is, you know, as we all know, a lot of uncertainty in the language professions right now um, in the U.S. Oh, I just saw a statistic that over 90% of our current job growth is in jobs that are freelance or independent contractor, don't provide a guaranteed income or paid vacation or health insurance or any of the benefits that employees get. Um, and so I think to um, face all of those challenges, we are undoubtedly better off um, sticking together. And I think um, specifically for, um, I mean, it's kind of an American thing to do a sales pitch, right? <laughs> so I'll do a sales pitch here. Sarah, refra Sarah refrained, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so um, if you're within the sound of my voice and you're not an ATA member, um, joining the ATA can, if you, for you guys who live in Europe and you'd be interested in working in the U.S. market, we give you access to the U.S. market. You get a listing in our directory. You can meet interpreters who work in the U.S. market who might need someone to team up with to work a conference. And I think um, even if you don't want to travel, um, U.S.-based clients who are going to the U.K., let's say they're going to meet some German investors in London, they might be looking for a good liaison interpreter to help them, and they might look in the ATA directory for such a person. So I think that, um, you know, that we offer both kind of feel-good advantages and advantages that show up in your bank account. Now, if that's not a great sales pitch, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't pay me the big bucks for nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I think this is the, the thing. One of the things that I wanted to, that I thought would be good to end on is the fact that if you're not in an association, there's no one watching your back. Yes, um, that's a great. And I think if I think one of the reasons why I love ITI is you know that someone's watching your back and that someone's listening and that there are people like you around to get you and have the capacity, not necessarily always a time, but have the capacity to do something. Um, and I, I, this, is, this is the thing. It's a case of the world is unstable. You need a ship that's going somewhere. Pick one. I like that. I like ships anyway. So that was a good, a good metaphor. <laughs> Okay, um, then let's uh, wrap this up. I mean, we, we could have gone on forever, I guess. There, there were lots of topics that we could have. <laughs> you guys ask great questions. <laughs> you yeah, good answers. You ask great questions. Exactly. But, but a, a podcast can only be uh, that long. Uh, and I think we've, we've come to the end for today, at least. So first of all, thank you so, so very much to Corinne and Sarah for being on the show. It was great to have you. Well, you. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's it's fair to say that all three of us really, really appreciate your work and, and find it very inspiring, which, which is one of the yeah. reasons we had you on the show in the yes. first place, of course. 
Um, and I think yeah. if, if you didn't know, dear listener, that uh, Jonathan, Alex and I are big fans of associations and of being in an associa- association, you should know by now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have any, any thoughts or comments on the topic of associations, if you agree with us or dis- disagree with us, of course, please do get in touch. And there are several ways of doing that. You can do it online on, on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, where you can find us under Trouble Terps. Uh, you can leave a comment on our website where you find all the episodes. So you can just leave a comment under this episode, for example, on troubleturps.com. And lastly, we have a live event coming up uh, very, very soon in the middle of November. And we, we are all three very much looking forward to this because <laughs> to this day, Jonathan, do you want to say it? Jonathan, it's yours. That's your thing. That's your that's your shtick. We have never actually been in the same per- in the same <laughs> room together. My theory is, and I've been telling people this theory, and people begin beginning to take me seriously, that the two Alex are just the same German guy who's it's very good at acting. It's, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find out if there are actually two Alexes, that's another good reason to join us for the live event. Um, <laughs> you can learn more about that uh, on our website, of course, troubleturps.com slash live, and of course on our social media. Um, so please watch this space. Um, and that's it. Shall we say bye, everyone? Thank you so much. <laughs> bye, bye. Bye, bye. Bye. The most relaxed bit of the podcast is the bit where we know Alex has hit the, the button to turn the recording off. And everyone's like... <laughs> ah. I came across a translator recently who only translated text on concrete. Must have been a very hard specialism to get into. There's my point of the day.